the Lord has brought us together from all different places, all different backgrounds, um, somehow in Lakeland, Florida, right here in Strong Tower Church. It's, it's good, to be, good to be in the house with the family. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. If you want to grab your Bibles uh, as you're turning there again, I want to welcome you if you're a guest here today. Uh, it really does help us to be praying for you and to follow up with you if you fill out that Connect card. So if you have a chance to do that, uh, please do that so we can pray for you and figure out how we can be a blessing in your life. Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. We're really going to cover the whole chapter. It's long though, so I'm just going to read the first five verses and then we'll kind of cover the story as we go. Okay, so the first five verses is where we will begin. Famous story of David and Bathsheba. Second Samuel 11. Let's pause and, and uh, take a moment to be silent before the Lord as we prepare our hearts. the reading of God's word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, but or then she turned to her or then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, playing God, playing God. Let's pray before we begin. Oh, Father, you, as we just sung, are God alone. There is no other God. You have many competitors, but no equals. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us today to reflect on that, to, to notice you in this place, notice you in your word. As you speak to us, may your Holy Spirit transform our hearts and minds that we might be more like Christ, the one true God. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, deep inside the Malheur National Forest in eastern Oregon lives the largest living organism in the world. This living organism is just one organism. Get this, it lives underground, hidden from the naked eye. Most people have never seen it. Most people have never even heard of it, but it's actually a fungus. It's a fungus called armillaria. It's popularly known as the honey mushroom. And in that area, that particular fungus is affectionately known as the humongous fungus. Because for thousands of years, this fungus has been growing and growing from a single microscopic spore to now, get this, it is covering over 3.7 square miles. Miles. And it's one organism. 
the humongous fungus. And as the humongous fungus makes its way spreading throughout this national forest, it comes to these trees, obviously, and it will devour trees. It'll work itself into its root system, and then as it gets into the root system, it cuts off the tree's ability to get nutrients, and the tree eventually dies. And as I was reading this article about the humongous fungus, this botanist, this lady who, who was interviewed by the, or she works for, sorry, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, she was being interviewed about how this happens and what it looks like, and she said this. She said, when you come up close to it, you don't really notice what's happening. She said, when you see just, just a pile of trees and why they, or, or you're uh, seeing these trees that have fallen, you're wondering, why did this happen? How did these trees die? It just looks like a random set of trees that have died in the middle of the forest. But she says, when you can pull back and you see the hole, you start to see that there's a pattern. You start to see that these trees and their death are all linked together. That if you look at the whole forest, you start to see in this 3.7 miles, these trees are dying in the same way with the same sickness. There's a pattern. It's not random, it's not unique, it's not even surprising. It's a consistent pattern. And listen, that, that is how evil works. There is a pattern to evil. There is a pattern to the evil and the sin in my heart and the sin in your heart, the sin that we see in the world. There's a pattern, but when you get up close to it, when you're in the moment of sin or you're, you're near evil, it feels unique. It feels surprising. It feels like you might be wondering, how in the world could this have happened? How in the world could I have done that? How, how could I have said that? What, why did that person treat me that way? Or, or why does that person hold that particular view? Or, or why do they treat people in the way that they treat people? Whatever it is, you might be wondering in the moment, how could this happen? Because it seems, when you're close up to it, this is unique. This is different. But if you can pull back, and you can see the whole, you start to see sin is actually pretty predictable. Sin is actually pretty predictable. I mean, with sin, it can feel like a, after a while, you're, you're kind of watching a rerun of, of one of those 90s shows, you know, like that was just on repeat over and over and over again. I don't know, something like Law and Order. It's the same plot line every single time, right? And you know it's coming, you know what's going to happen, and yet you've seen it over and over and you're excited to watch it again. Because you know the pattern, you know the plot line, and when you've been around sin long enough, you start living long enough, you start seeing things long enough, you start to see the patterns. And you can, you can tell that this is what it looks like, this is what's going to happen, this is the way sin works. It gets kind of predictable. Because it's the same humongous fungus that's been spreading for thousands of years, getting its, its presence into the roots of every human heart, into every corner of creation, and it's created a predictable pattern. And so, it, even though it, in the moment it feels remarkable, it's actually pretty repetitive. And what I want us to see about sin this morning as we look at this is I want us to be able to recognize that pattern. I want us to be able to say, what is the pattern of sin? How does sin actually work in the human heart? How does it work in our world? And this is what our story is going to teach us this morning. So we're continuing in this series through 2 Samuel. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the life of David and how David has been rising to his place to reign as king. 
right? And it seems like the last few weeks, I mean, it's just success after success after success. David is winning wars. David is reestablishing worship at the temple or or at the tabernacle. David is uh, receiving this covenant from God, and God is saying to David, your kingdom is going to have no end. I mean, that's amazing. And then David turns around, and he decides he's going to be kind and bless his enemy's family. I mean, David couldn't be better at this point, right? David is just up and to the right. His life is on an incredible trajectory, and then he falls off a cliff in chapter 11. And it's the kind of scene where if you're reading 2 Samuel, you're wondering, how in the world could that happen to David? I mean, David is supposed to be God's man. He he was described as a man after God's own heart. He was the guy that God handpicked to lead Israel. How can he have this kind of devastating sin, this kind of devastating fall? Well, actually, when you pull back, it's pretty predictable. What happens is David falls into the same pattern of sin, the same trap of sin that all of us, you and me, have fallen into over and over every day. And so what I want us to look at today is there, there is this pattern, there is this predictable way that sin works in its power, and it happens to many of us. And so how, this is the question, how does sin take us from the peak to the pit? How does it take us from where we want to be all the way down to where we find David? So let's look first at the root of sin. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point is the root of sin. Look at verse 2. This is how the story begins. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, there's two names that are forever associated with David, Goliath and Bathsheba. Even if you've never read the Bible or maybe you're a casual reader of the Bible, you, you have heard the names Goliath and Bathsheba. And what's interesting about David's life is those two names come at David's highest point and David's lowest point. With Goliath, you find David at the peak of his fame and his favor, and everyone is cheering. They're singing about David. And then with Bathsheba, you find David in the pit of despair and sin and brokenness. So you have these extremes with David. And the question is, how does this happen with Bathsheba? Well, as the story begins, David is in the springtime, and, and uh, as it says, the kings were normally supposed to be out in battle. We don't know why, but David decides to stay back. Maybe he's tired, maybe he's lazy, I, we don't know. But David stays back. He sends his army out, right? And his army and, and Joab, his general, they're fighting against the Ammonites, and David's relaxing at the house. David is relaxing. He decides, you know, I'm going to go for a walk on the roof. I don't know what his roof looked like. I don't know what his house looked like. But this was apparently nice. He's got a nice little balcony roof. He's looking out. He's enjoying himself. And then he sees a woman bathing. And instead of looking away, David stops for a moment. And he starts to ask the people around him, who is that lady? Go find out who that lady is. And as he sends these people out to go find out who this woman is, they come back, they report to David, this is one of your soldier's wives. This this is Uriah the Hittite, one of your soldiers. It's his wife Bathsheba. Why are you asking about Bathsheba? Right? They, They try to stop David, but David doesn't care. David again sends them to go get her. They take her back and David sleeps with her and sends her home. 
There's very few details. It's very uh, objectified in the story. It, it's very straight to the point. This is what happened. David saw this as very transactional. And then he gets word back from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. Now, there's something in the story that you've got to pick up on before we keep moving. There's this subtle word all throughout the chapter that really helps you understand what's happening in David's heart in the moment. Okay? It's this word, Send. This word sin, it's repeated over five times just with David, and then there's other people who are doing it too. But in verse 1, David sent Joab. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. Verse 4, David sent messenger, messengers and took her. Later in verse 6, David sent word to Joab. Verse 27, David sent and brought her to his house, right? It's this seemingly innocent verb, seemingly innocent verb, sent, but now what used to be innocent has now become corrupted. It started with David using a legitimate use of power to, to command his army, but now it's corrupted, and David is in control. David's calling the shots. David's telling people what to do. He's sending this person there and this person there and this person there. David is making things happen. David is, is living his life with his own power, his own success, his own control. In other words, David is playing God. And so when he comes to Bathsheba, just like he's in that moment, he's in that zone, I'm God, I'm in control, I can run my life, I can do my thing, he treats Bathsheba not as a person, but as an object. And so just like he's commanding his army, he sends for Bathsheba. In other words, she's not a person made in the image of God, just as the people reported back. This is someone's daughter, this is someone's wife. To David, she's an object. David is playing God. Now listen, the, the whole scene is an echo. It's, it's an echo of, um, of what happens in Eden. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, if you know the story, they're, they're approached by the tempter. And as Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve, do you remember what he says to them? He says, he says to Eve, you, you uh, let me get it right real quick. Uh, he says, you will not surely die. You will be like God. He says to her, listen, you, you think God is keeping something from you. You, you, you think God is, is, is holding back from you. And so if you want to have what you desire, if you want to be your own person, if you want to live what you want to do, here it is. You can be God. The very first temptation in the Garden of Eden, the first temptation is deeper than sex, it's deeper than pleasure, it's deeper than money, it's deeper than whatever else may be on the outward appearance. The very first temptation is this temptation to be God. In other words, sin derives from our desire to replace God. It derives from our desire to replace Him. Now, the feeling of sin can fool us into not understanding the nature of sin. Eugene Peterson says it great. He says it like this. He says, The subtlety of sin is that it doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. It feels godlike. It feels religious. It feels fulfilling and satisfying. You hear that? Well, what he's saying is this. He's saying, for David, he... He didn't feel like he was doing something wrong. He, he felt like he was in control. 
He felt like he was powerful. He felt confident. He felt like, I can do whatever I want to do. I can live my life. I can have whatever I want to have. He felt godlike. He felt godlike. This is, this is what's at the depth of your sin and my sin. What, what's happening in our sin is there's something deep within us that wants to replace God with ourselves, right? I mean, who needs God when you can be your own God? Who needs God when you can live your own life and have your own control and have your own power? This is why even good things can become sinful things, right? Around here, we talk about it as, as idolatry. Idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a God thing, and that's a bad thing, right? It's taking a good thing that God has created for your life to enjoy and to be uh, you know, a part of, of what we, we love about this world, and we twist it into something that now becomes ultimate. And because that thing is ultimate and now it's a new God in our life, now it's become sinful. And so what once was a good use of power is now an abuse of power. What was once a desire for friendship is now fornication. What was once a passion to provide for your family is now ravenous greed. In other words, this outward expression of sin is a sign of something happening in us. It's a sign of a corruption within our heart. Jesus made this same observation right throughout most of his teaching, and especially with the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they, they were telling everybody to focus on the outward appearance. And so they're, they're concerned about reputation. They're concerned about, you know, how often did you show up at synagogue? How often did you read the scriptures? How often did you pray? Did everybody see you praying? You know, did, did you do all these things outwardly? And Jesus comes to them and he says, no, you're concerned about the wrong thing. You're concerned about uh, cleaning the outside of the cup, but inside of the cup is filthy. He says, you've got it backwards. You've got sin backwards. You're focused on the outward, thinking if you change the outward, it'll affect the inward. Jesus says, you've got to flip that. If you change the inward, that's where it works towards the outward. And so he says in Mark chapter 7, he, he says it this way. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. He says, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I mean, Jesus just goes on and on. He lists 13. I think he could have listed 100,000. But, you know, Mark would have been really long if that was the list, right? Jesus is saying it's, it's not just adultery. See, what's happening with David is really a framework of how all sin works. It's not, it's not just a story about adultery. This is a story about how sin works in my life and how it works in your life. What we're seeing in David is, is a heart that's been corrupted by his desire to replace God. This deep desire that's within all of us. And so the question with all of our sin is, where in your life are you trying to replace God? God has created us to reflect him, not replace him. Right? He's created us in his image to reflect him, but not be him. And so where, where in your life? Like it, it might be in your marriage where you're, you're trying to be God for your spouse. You're, you're trying to fix that person and all the things that you hate about your spouse that you thought would go away in the first five years. And then you're like, maybe in the next 10 years. And now you're 20 years in and you're thinking, okay, well, I don't know, maybe never. But you're still trying. You're trying to be God in their life and fix them. 
Or maybe for you, it's, it's finances, and, and you're trying to be God in your finances as you've gone through difficult times in the last few months or something, and, and now you're anxious and worried all the time trying to figure out how is this going to work. I don't know, but listen, you're not God. You can't be your own God. And so there's all kinds of ways, but you got to ask yourself, where am I trying to not live depending on him and reflecting him, but rather I'm trying to replace him. I'm trying to replace him. That is the beginning of sin. And our attempts at playing God, they feel intoxicating. They feel fulfilling and satisfying. Like I feel like I'm accomplishing something and doing something until it comes all crashing down. And that's where I want to look the second point is the ruin of sin, the ruin of sin. Look at verse 6. It goes on in the story to say, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. There's that little word again. Three times in one verse. Three times in one verse. But now David is sending people and doing things and actively trying to take control, not for his sin, but to cover up his sin. So now there's this cover-up attempt that begins, and David thinks he has a brilliant idea. David thinks, I'll just call Uriah in and, and, and tell Uriah, you know what? You've done a great job out on the battlefield. You're, you're fighting for your country. How about you go home and enjoy a little relaxing time with your family? Just take a vacation with your wife and kids. Enjoy your family. And so he calls Uriah in, and Uriah comes, and he tells Uriah that, and Uriah says, you know what? No. I'm going to go sleep on your porch until tomorrow so I can go back to the battle. And David's like, what are you, what are you talking about? And th- this is what Uriah says in verse 11. Uriah is in verse 11. It says, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In other words, Uriah is saying, Everyone else is out risking their life, sleeping in tents. Why am I going to go home and hang out with my family? I'm going to stay right here, and then I'm going to go back to my job. Now, David thinks, hey, it didn't work the first time. Let's try it a second time. He invites Uriah over for a party, tries to get him drunk, and tries to do the same thing, and Uriah still refuses. All throughout the story, Uriah's character is a rebuke to David's lack of character. Uriah's character is a constant rebuke to David. David, you're you're missing it. David, you're missing it. And yet David's still trying to play God and take control. He has one last attempt. Again, he sends, but this time he sends a letter to Joab and says to Joab, okay, put Uriah at the front of the battle lines in the most dangerous fighting. In other words, put him towards his death. And Joab, if you know anything about Joab, he was always hungry for blood. Joab's always looking for some kind of twisted angle to, to have a political move. And so Joab jumps on it. He loves it. And so Joab eventually uh, puts Uriah at the front. And of course, Uriah dies in battle. Joab sends a messenger back to David to tell him. And David doesn't tell anybody what he's done. He thinks he's got away with it. He thinks he's killed Uriah. All the evidence is gone. Now, the question is, how did this happen? How did we get to this point? I mean, David, when he woke up that morning on on, on the roof, he didn't think, I've got murder on my mind. I'm going to kill somebody. I'm going to ruin someone's life and then kill their spouse. But this is how sin develops. We learn in James chapter 1, 
James says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What starts as a desire ends in death. And in David and Uriah's case, it's a literal death. What started with a desire ends with this man's death. Sin always results in this surprising wreckage that no one expects. Again, we see echoes of Eden here all throughout the story. When Adam and Eve realize that they had sinned, right? They, they start doing what? The first thing they do when they find out they've sinned against God, they hide. They run from God and they hide. They try to cover it up. They, they literally sew together fig trees to try to cover themselves from God because they know that what they've done is wrong and there's shame that they're dealing with. And so they're trying to deal with that shame by doing what? Taking control of it themselves. They're still trying to take control of it and trying to fix it, trying to solve the problem by covering themselves and hiding themselves. And it's the same thing that David does. As soon as David has realized, I've really messed up, he tries to cover it. He tries to hide. He tries to do whatever he can to take control of it because the shame that he's experiencing will move him to do terrible things. And in his case, his shame goes so far as to murder an innocent man to cover up what he's done. It turns out David is not so good at playing God. It turns out you and I are not so good at playing God. See, none of us think that we're going to get to this point. Not Adam, not Eve, not David, not me, not you, until we do. No one. No, no, when, you, when you begin to say, I could never do blank, you've taken your first step towards the path of all kinds of wreckage. And, and listen, I'm, I'm telling you, unfortunately, as your pastor, in the last 10 years, we're about to celebrate 10 years, there, there have been too many stories of people who've been pulled into things that they never imagined possible. No one wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm going to wreck my family. No one wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm going to steal from my company. No one wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'm going to do something that will land me in jail. No, no one wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm going to ruin relationships that I've had for decades. It, it just doesn't happen, but then somehow you end up there. And here's how. I'll tell you how. It's when you hide your sin in shame, sin begins to grow in that darkness. It begins to grow in the darkness. David gets to that point because he starts covering up. He starts hiding. He starts seeing, I can fix this. I can fix this. I can fix this. And he leaves it in the darkness. And rather than face our sin with courage, we hide our sin in shame. See, shame is, is the fear of not belonging. It's the fear that if, if I really deal with those doubts, maybe I won't belong. Maybe I'll be disqualified. And so we hide. Or we're afraid that those desires for intimacy will never be fulfilled, and so we hide. Or we're afraid that those desires for someone else who, who can be a companion and be part of my life, that it'll never be fulfilled, and so I hide. But maybe even deeper than that is we're afraid that if we face our sin, we can't play God anymore. And so we hide. We hide right? Rather than confess our sin, we try to manage it. We try to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover it up. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to do whatever I can because I think I can beat this. All it takes is a little management. 
All it takes is sew some fig leaves together. All it takes is call Uriah in and I can fix that. All it takes is I can just call this one person. I can just do this. I, I can you know, put an app on my phone or I, I, can, I can do whatever. I can fix it. I can manage this. And as we hide it, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse until it's out of control. That same letter of James where James talks about that progression of sin growing At the end of James, uh, he has this incredibly revolutionary, life-giving practice in James 5. Listen to what he says. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Here it is, that you may be healed. Confess your sins that you may be healed. In other words, what he's saying is confessing, not hiding, brings healing. It's so counterintuitive because we, in our human nature, we, we think that if I can just hide my sin and control my sin, it'll go away. Like somehow I can cover it up and it'll die in darkness. But it's the complete opposite. In darkness, it grows and it grows and it grows. The, the only way you deal with sin, the only way you can face sin is to bring it out into the light. Is to confess it. But not only do you confess your sin, you have to confess that you can't manage it. In other words, this is what confession sounds like. This is what humility sounds like. God, I can't deal with my sin. I can't fix it. I can't make it better. I can't go against it with my own power. God, I need you to fix it. I've been fighting this thing for years. I've been fighting this thing for decades. And and God, I need you to step in. I need you to do it because I'm not good at being God for myself. I'm not good at at controlling my life. I'm not good at managing my life. I don't have the power and the strength. I don't have the ability. But you do. You do. Do you hear that? What you're saying is I'm confessing what I've done, but I'm also confessing what I can't do. I can't do redemption. I can't do salvation. I can't do transformation in my life. God, I need you to do it. I need you to do it. And listen, that, that's exactly what God does. He, he steps into those moments, and, and he steps into our sin and our shame. And, and, and what kills shame, what, what deals with shame, is to bring it out in vulnerability. It's to say, this is who I really am, and I need you, God. I need you, God. And so what's our hope as we find ourselves in that wreckage of sin? This is the last point I want to look at, the redemption of sinners. The redemption of sinners. Look at verse 1 in chapter 12. And we're going to cover chapter 12 next week, uh, but I want you to just get a glimpse of what happens. Chapter 12, just the first part of verse 1, it says this, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Did you catch it? David is sending and sending and sending and sending and sending. I mean, he's convinced everyone else they need to start sending. Bathsheba's sending. Joab is sending. The messengers are sending. Everyone in chapter 11 is sending. And now God steps in and God says, no, I'm sending Nathan to you. I'm sending Nathan to you. David, you are done playing God. David, you are done trying to be me. Let me be me. I am the true God. And he steps in and he sends Nathan his prophet. Nathan rebukes him. Nathan redeems him. But it's God saying, I'm coming after you. Next week, we're going to look at his repentance. And we're going to look at what Nathan does and how God has loved him through Nathan. But right now, what I want you to see is his sovereign pursuit of sinners. 
God is coming after David. In other words, David, when he's in his pit, when he's in the worst part of his life, when he's trapped in sin, God says, I'm going to pursue you. David, you're not God. You're not king. You're not the ultimate ruler and reigner of this world. I am. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. David, you're not God. I am. Again, we see echoes of Eden. When Adam and Eve are running from God, when they're hiding from God in the bushes, trying to cover themselves, trying to to make it better, God is what? Pursuing them. God is chasing them down in the garden saying, where are you? Come back to me. I love you. I'm for you. He's chasing them down in their sin. It's the sovereign God. While they're hiding, he's hunting for them. Because listen, God doesn't abandon sinners. He pursues sinners. He pursues them. In 1890, there was a man in London uh, named Francis Thompson who wrote this now famous poem called The Hound of Heaven. And G.K. Chesterton, who's a famous author, he, he wrote or read this poem and loved this poem. And he said about it, he said, it's the finest poem in the English language that I know of. Now, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings and that whole trilogy, he also loved this poem. And Tolkien said about Chesterton's comment, he said, he didn't give it the credit it deserved. Right? In other words, they, they absolutely loved this poem. And what's fascinating about the poem is its background. Because Francis Thompson, he, he was a Christian when he wrote the poem, but when you look at his life, you might consider he was going through some hard times. In fact, he was struggling with addiction that was coming after his struggle with depression. And so he got addicted to opium, and, and he, uh, because of that, kind of spiraled out of control, and he got kicked out of the place he was living, and he started living on the street for a little while. He was staying next to uh, the River Thames in, in London, and uh, he, he's staying there with the homeless and the addicts for Three years on the street. Three years on the street. And while he's living on the street, he's writing these poems down about the relentless love of God. And one family who, who was down there kind of ministering to him, they, they invite him over to their house and they take him in and they, they try to help him get back on his feet and they find his poems. And they're like, you, you got to publish these things. These are incredible. And so they help him get his poems published. And next thing you know, in a few years, he becomes famous for his poetry. And I want you to hear just this one glimpse of what he writes in The Hound of Heaven. He pictures God as chasing him down like a greyhound on a hunt. This is what he says. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him, from those strong feet that followed followed after me, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic urgency, those feet kept beating after me. And then for 181 lines, he starts to talk about how the feet of God are chasing him and the voice of God are calling out to him and they're calling and they're chasing and they're calling until he finally is caught and he comes to the Lord. This is the love of God for sinners like us. He sends for us. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Right? God sends more than a prophet. He sends the one the prophets promised. 
He sends Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He sent Jesus when we were in the depths of our sin and shame. He sent Jesus when our hiding had finally failed. He sent Jesus when our sin management was unmanageable. He sent Jesus while we were fleeing in our unfaithfulness. He sent Jesus to heal us from the guilt and ruin of all our sin in all creation. God would overcome every temptation for our redemption in Christ. Jesus would die in righteousness to secure for me his righteousness, right? Jesus would rise from the dead in power over sin and death that we might, not, that we might live forever, not under its power anymore. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he said. Jesus came to heal those who were hiding. Jesus came for you and me because he was sent. He was sent by the Father in the midst of our sin. While we were yet sinners, he says, I'm sending my son. I'm sending the one who will redeem you. The one who will show you in the mirror. This is who you are, but this is who I am. This is who I am. Jesus, the hound of heaven, was sent for us. Sent for you and me. Will you receive him? That, that, that's the question of all eternity. Will you receive what God has sent? The line I love the most in the poem is when he says, unhurrying pace. Unhurrying pace. It's great because it, it captures two things that are super important. It captures the fact that Jesus is persistent, but he's also patient. He's persistent because he's, he's never going to give up on you. He's going to keep chasing you. He's going to keep pursuing you in your life. You can keep running. You can keep hiding. You can keep covering. You can keep trying to fix things and manage your sin by yourself. But he's not going to stop chasing you. And at the same time, he's patient. He's got your whole life to catch you. He's got your whole life waiting for you to turn around and respond to his grace that's been extended to you. Right? He makes the first move. God always makes the first move. He moves towards you. He chases you down. But it, it calls for a response. And that response is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is simply this. You're, you're just saying, I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn around. And I'm going to go towards the one who's chased me. I'm going to give him my life. I'm going to surrender to his unhurried chase towards me. And when you do that, there's this this God who has been loving you and pursuing you and, and he's able to be a God way better than you and me. Way better than you and me. And then you can begin to actually reflect him rather than try to replace him. So let's go to him now. Oh Lord Jesus, we are grateful for who you are and how you have loved us in our darkest moments. That you didn't give up on us, but you've pursued us. As we've tried to replace you, you took our place. You died on the cross in our place. And so even though we are constantly trying to live without you, you have pursued us so that we can live with you. We're so grateful. So grateful. And for all eternity, we'll be giving you praise for all that you've done. And so today, God, we ask that you would open up our hearts to, to receive that gift of repentance and faith whether we're people who are already uh, Christians who've called you by name and, and uh, call you our Lord and Savior, we still need you. We still need you every day as we get pulled into the, the lure, the trap 
the desires that are so deep within all of us that we could be our own God and live our own life and be independent of you. God, work in our lives to heal us of that. God, as we confess our sins and turn to the one who saves us from our sins, may there be deep healing. May there be deep belonging that covers our shame. As we are sons and daughters in your family, you've brought us in. Oh, Lord Jesus, may you be glorified and may it be for our good. We pray in your name. Amen.